Welcome to the Indigo Podcast, an exploration of human flourishing at work and beyond. I'm Ben Barron of Indigo Anchor and Cleveland State University. And I'm Chris Everett of Indigo Anchor. For more information, please visit us at www.indigopodcast.com. Hey, Chris, how's it going? Dude, I'm doing good, man. How's it going? Awesome. Doing great. So I had this thought. I just have a question for you. What What is an organization? I love this question um, because anything I say is going to be reductionist, right? What What do you mean by reductionist? Like you cannot – an organization is so broad – and even using the word broad, oh, is it is it wide? Is it dimensional? It's complex. What does that mean? Complex. Like anything I say is going to be not complete enough. But you can't describe uh, organizations apophatically um, either, which for the uninitiated, apophatically is describing something by that which it is not. So I'm going to say that organizations are, for a working definition in my mind, that would be colored in by a lot, a lot of literature on the back end, would be a cohort of, you know, for my case, I'm going to ignore organization of ants and subspecies. You see how it starts to get complex, (laughs) right? So I'm going to talk about human organizations. So I'm going to carve out that tranche. And I'm just going to say it's kind of a sack of humans doing stuff for reasons. <laughs> I would say and, that's, that's not a bad place to start necessarily. Uh, and the, the CEOs always thinks, yeah, that's right. I give them the reasons. But like some people are there just for a paycheck. They really don't care that you inherited this business from your daddy. Like they, they don't, they're just there for a paycheck and they're going to like go to the barbecue and be like, oh yeah, the mission's awesome, but they don't care about your mission. All right. It's a complex sack of individuals doing things. So there, how, how's that been? What what do you think an organization is? So it's okay. I, it's, it is a, it's a tricky question and it's one of those questions that's almost like a philosophical question. Like what is beauty? What is truth? What is justice? It's one of these questions that takes this ordinary thing, this ordinary construct or something that we think we know and experience daily. And it's it's an attempt to try to actually dig into what its essence really is. And I ask this question because it has to do with today's topic. We do have a topic, dear listeners, for today's episode. Uh, but I ask this question because it, it, I will never forget when I was first starting my PhD. We were sitting there in, you know, the way that graduate school works, at least in the social sciences, is many of your courses, some of your courses are methods courses where you learn a whole bunch of statistical gymnastics and things about how to do research. Other courses are ones in which are there's seminars where you sit around and it's a cohort of your fellow graduate students and a professor. You've read a whole bunch of articles, and especially in the beginning of your time, you probably don't understand them, or you're taking away some ideas that probably aren't even what the author intended. Uh, but you sit around and you talk about things. 
and the professor guides it in a certain way. Well, we had a, a, a course called, I think it was called Organizational Science Overview. And it was taught by Dr. Cliff Scott. Cliff is an amazing guy, uh, and he's an organizational communication scholar with just a really broad um, command of the literature and, and super, I, we have a lot of similar research interests. But, you know, what Cliff said is he started with that question when we were getting our PhDs. He posed this question, what is an organization? And some of us said things kind of along the lines of what you said, Chris. And then he threw out some ideas. He said, well, okay, is a pickup basketball game, is that an organization? And you start to pick this apart and it really starts, I mean, and by the way, after three hours, it's not like we had a definition. Uh, there are many different definitions of what an organization is out there. Uh, and and then there's this whole idea that the idea of using the idea of organization as a noun isn't really even accurate. Instead, the idea of organizing as a verb or as a gerund, if you will, is a is a way to think about the the continual evolution of how we interact as humans. And it, it's a fascinating way to look at what, what goes on around us that we don't even notice on a daily basis, the number of interactions we have with organizations and how it shapes how we experience reality. It's a fundamental part, I would argue, of being a human is this idea of human organizing. Yeah, I mean... This is the whole the whole thing about how you even think about humans. And I, I think when we get down to those deeper levels, like what a what is beauty, you know, these are the great the great questions. Mm -hmm. Um like philosophically. And then you like you almost have to get into like, are you like a consequentialist? How do you view free will, if at all? Because these are the things. So, right, is a basketball an organization or is it just human organizing? Um, I don't know. Like, I feel like evolutionary biologists might have something to say about human organizing organizations more so than a lot of people you'd see on LinkedIn. Maybe. It's not obvious to me how how that how biologists would contribute to that conversation maybe they can i don't know but i do have a definition of organizing and i'm paraphrasing off the top of my head could be getting this totally wrong but the organizational theorist carl wyke he wrote in his one of his seminal books it's called the social psychology of organizing and he said that organizing is a consensually validated grammar for reducing equivocality through sensible interlocking behaviors. Right? Dude, you, this just, is, you just pulled that out of your brain. I did. I'm watching because, well, you look at the ceiling, remembering this. Well, it's A plus, I, Ben. I, well, A I plus. I liked it so much when I read it for the first time years and years ago that I, I did memorize it because I thought it was useful and it helps us to understand how we even think about organi organizations and organizing because the way in which we interact with each other uh, shapes the norms, the behaviors, what's expected, what's not expected. And these enable us, kind of as you said, to become groups and teams that actually do things. And the, the triumphs of human organization are unequivocal. 
we we have been able to do amazing things as humans uh, together. And that that is something that continually inspires me. It's something that continually fascinates me. And maybe we should move on to talk about kind of what the, we're, why we're talking about this and what what we're talking about today. You know, the, the topic of today is this idea of a metaphor for the organization. And there's a common one out there, which is this metaphor of a family. You know, and usually it's talked about in a very positive way that we're a family here and this organization is a family. We treat each other like family. So we're going to talk about these metaphors for organization and how they matter. And we're going to talk about kind of how those conversations can shape or reinforce cultural norms. And then we're going to delve into this whole idea of family and this, this metaphor for the organization as family and why it's a problematic way in our view to think about your work organization. And we'll try to distill down some implications as well for people, leaders, and organizations as we go through it. Well, the reason I think about evolutionary biology and maybe even some science that whatever cohorts of science food groups that I don't even know the right names for is that idea of us evolving language, right? We evolve language, at least how I think about it, and we started to collaborate. And one of the earliest collaborations would be family groups, right? And you see this in the animal kingdom. You know, raising children for some species is an expensive investment of effort, life, all of, you know, resources and those kinds of things. And so, and since everybody is born into some kind of family group, now that may be not a nuclear family for sure. I think that's one of the first lenses that they bring to any relationships. I've seen, mm. I remember friends, people dealing with friend problems in high school and college. They were starting to look to friends for the kind of relationship they would get with like a close family cohort. And then I also see a lot of people come to organizations, you know, maybe they didn't, I don't. I don't know enough about this piece, but maybe they didn't get enough psychological support from their family of origin. And so they go to organizations out in the world, including their place of work, looking looking for family, mm-hmm. or the, like a family replacement. And then also I see a lot of executives and CEOs. It seems like that's the main mental model. And they... They really care about maybe their dad started the organization or something, or maybe they're an entrepreneur founder themselves. They really care about it. And that care and love for that mission, that or that cohort of people, like I was calling organizations, they they just transfer that lens or that let's keyword metaphor of family and start actually treating people like family. And that is fraught. That is fraught. And as fraught as it might be, I think you make a good point that this metaphor of family may originate from a place of of familiarity with the what we may consider to be the most fundamental sociological unit, the family, however you define that. And then people go into the workplace and they build upon those relationships that maybe they had or they didn't have those experiences and they transfer them to the workplace. At the same time, organizations are a source of socio-emotional need fulfillment. We do have socio-emotional needs. We 
like to interact with other people to some degree, some more than others. Uh, and we, we also have <laughs> a need for, uh, you know, having a venue for the expression of and the validation of emotion. And organizations are one place where that happens. And that's not altogether a bad thing. I would say that uh, it's it's going to happen no matter what. And it, it could be a very useful thing. And, you know, you'd probably find an organization in which there was no fulfillment of your social socio-emotional needs to be one that was incredibly unbearably sterile, sterile. And that would just be not a fun place to be uh, experiencing on a daily basis. Uh, but it does bring, you know, if we bring this idea of family to the organization, that's that's tricky. Yeah, it's. And I, I don't think people necessarily do it on purpose or like with ill intent. I really think there's good no. intent there. But this is the problem that we try to remedy so often, Ben, is people's scope and view of the world is maybe a little bit narrow sometimes because they get busy and they're just working. They had to learn a bunch of stuff in school. Then they had to make money. And we want, like, at least in this episode, we just want you to take a little ride with us up into the clouds to look down and just see a little bit more broadly about human organizing. Cause a lot of people just don't take the time. This is kind of a weird thing to think about. What do you mean? I I'm living my life. I make money. I get in fights. I love my kids. What? And it's like, okay, well let's, let's look at all of that a and little bit. Sure. And it's reasonable for someone to say, why is this even relevant to my existence. And the reason that it's relevant, as we'll talk about, is that the way in which we think about and talk about our organizations influences our attitudes, it influences our perceptions, it influences our behaviors, those things that we can and maybe cannot do within our organizations. So let's start maybe by talking about this idea of metaphors for organization and for uh, and kind of why they matter. So there are many different metaphors, but I think the you know the first piece that's important is you know this is this is one way in which we conceptualize what an organization is, as evidenced by our earlier conversation. It's it's difficult to even think about what an organization is because is it a you know think about like Michael Scott from The Office. Well, the first thing you need for a company is a building and real business gets done on paper, right? We oftentimes think of like a building. We think of these physical things or other types of stuff, but that's not what an organization is. Uh, but, but these metaphors are helpful for helping us understand what we're even talking about and how we interact with it. So much of human existence and interaction is storytelling. Mm. Right, Ben, and like, you know, I've talked to you about this thing. It's like, hey, we just got to think about being one on one at a campfire together. And what, you know, what it, what do we do when people are stuck one on one? We ask questions, but we kind of tell stories and we tell stories because, man, it would take so long. If you were to describe, let's say you could have complete omniscient understanding of an organization. It would take you years to tell everything that makes up and is an organization. But some people use stories to highlight aspects. And that's a that's a positive thing about metaphors. 
as it kind of zooms in on a particular aspect of what that might be. Or, but that's also a weakness is because it doesn't tell the whole story, Mm -hmm. right? So, you know, what is that? Life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get from Forrest Gump. And it's (laughs) like, yeah, like he's kind of focusing on that element of like, man, life kind of throws you some, you know, sidewinders and curveballs sometimes, right? Um, But that life is more than just a a box of chocolate. And so sure. And you know, it's interesting because this idea of storytelling as a way for us to understand reality, it, it, to me in recent years, I, as a social scientist, I have become increasingly uh, perhaps disillusioned with our ability to express and describe what organizational life is like through journal articles, <laughs> through uh, through statistics. These are all helpful ways and lenses through which we can understand what's going on within organizations. But I also think there's tremendous value in, for example, art and thinking about how these different ways of communicating, maybe it's just a limitation of human language in and of itself, the, the written word that keeps us from fully understanding uh, some of the really interesting and useful aspects of human organizing. And that's something maybe I'll delve into more in a, a paper or something. I just think it's a really interesting thing. But it has to do with this idea of metaphors. And as I mentioned earlier, you know how we talk about things does influence how we think about them, and it influences how we act. And there are many different common metaphors for organizations. We're not the first people to think of this. This is not a Ben and Chris original. <laughs> but um, many people have not thought much about is <laughs> no. not much is and, uh, original. Yeah. That's right. That's right. So we, you know, there there are some very well known ways of thinking about organizations as metaphors, and so maybe we'll talk about some of those just to give some good examples for our listeners. Yeah. So the main stuff, the idea of organizational metaphor, comes from this guy named Gareth Morgan. Right. And he did this book in the mid 60s called Images of Organization. And he has eight organizational metaphors. Now, I know that a lot of people have taken these metaphors and added to them, refined them. But right, there's the main thing is there's tons of metaphors for organizations that come out of the organizational sciences. So even the cohort of scientists are not completely rejecting the utility, at least in using metaphors. Not at all. No, I would say that, especially from the perspective of organizational theory and organizational communication, I think there are many people who would say that metaphors are absolutely essential for how we understand organizing and that it's not a bad way, and that, but it is a way for us to think about organizing. And so uh, you were right that, you know, Gareth Morgan's book, it came out in the 80s. I think you said the 60s, but regardless. Oh, my we'll bad. Put, we'll put a link in the show notes. It came out a while ago. My my uh, Our children would call it vintage, probably. So, <laughs> <laughs> Back when but... Cindy Lauper was a thing, <laughs> this was also a thing. There you go. Perfect. Uh, we, so we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And we also put a link to an article that's a little bit more recent. It's from 2016 in the journal Human Relations 
uh, called Beyond Morgan's Eight Metaphors, Adding to and Developing Organization Theory. So those might be interesting references for our listeners. But let's talk about let's some of these. these. Yeah, let's, yeah, talk let's about, do the eight. Let's talk about the eight. So the first one, and this is a common one, is an organization as a machine. You know, one of the biggest examples of this that um, I, I think it's very problematic, first of all, but it's one way to think about an organization. Um, it's the way that, for example, I used to think about the United States Navy before I actually experienced it full time. I used to think that this large military organization was a well-oiled machine. That's how I thought about it. And then I realized how complicated organizations actually are once I was a member of one. <laughs> uh, but uh, do you remember that book? Um, you and I both read it. It was Ray Dalio's book, uh, Principles. Yeah, and that guy's problematic for a lot of reasons, but we always right. check in on what's out there, you know. Exactly, but but do you remember how prevalent this metaphor of machine was in that book? It was like that that that's the way he sees the world. Yeah, it totally is. And if you guys haven't seen, there's a cartoon that he commissioned himself on YouTube called "How the Economic Machine Works," and even though it's not a machine. It's a really good lens for right. talking about how transactions build an economy. Sure, but that's about the economy, right? And he takes that idea of machine and makes it tries to say oh, yeah. that that's He's how organizations work. Right. So, but but there is some value. It's not completely worthless, right? Right. Well, the, some of this machine idea, I think if I had to guess, I, I don't know this beyond a shadow of doubt, came from early management theory that would have been part and parcel of how he came up in his business education mm. right and that that idea first of all um you know we started to build manufacturing lines and everybody did have to play a role and the idea of you know what is that old musical how to succeed in business without ever trying right everybody plays a role and you're a better employee that'll shoot to the top the more you make yourself into a better cog in the wheel Mm. And that, you know, early management theory was, oh, let's just get a stopwatch and measure how many widgets this person can put in. And we had the emergence of what we call a professional organization where everybody has a distinct role. And armies, right? Mm -hmm. Navies are like that, right? If you're on a ship, everybody kind of has a specific job and it could, to the uninitiated, be a machine. Sure. And so the machine is a helpful metaphor if we're trying to understand roles and responsibilities, if we're trying to understand a, uh, an assembly line, right? So you're, you're referring to those early ideas of scientific management, time and motion yeah. studies. Like that's where industrial and organizational psychology kind of comes from. Like that's in very early days, right? Uh, but we've moved on from that. There's, you know, other metaphors for organizations. So machine is one. Another one is an organism. I, this one, I... I'm more sympathetic to this idea as an organism, maybe as evidenced by my um, affinity for using the idea of organizing, as I shared earlier. But this is the idea that the organization is a collective response to its environment and to survive, it must adapt as the organization changes. Going back to my old professor, Cliff Scott, he, uh, <laughs> I remember he said, someone brought up, maybe it was one of my fellow students. Uh, but I think we talked about it a little bit in class was this idea of what if the organization is like an amoeba, right? And, and you know, this idea that it, it's always evolving, it's changing, it's splitting, it's doing these different things. And that's an interesting way to think about organizations as well. Yeah, I think um, at least a lot of 
Chuck Bam Chuck Bamford's work uh, around strategy is about finding that unique product market fit and kind of has some of that sensing and responding sure. to your organization. Uh, design thinking and how humans, I mean, a lot of the Silicon Valley uses that kind of lens or metaphor, right? We're talking metaphors for that kind of stuff. Um, another one is brain. That organization is a brain. It's a set of functions designed to process information and learn over time. Hmm. And I mean, that's okay. And But, you know, you'd have to add to that metaphor, learn and hopefully survive. And then you might bring the lens of like organization is bringing survival and wealth to its recipients. I mean, right. You, but as a brain, it, the organization processes information and learns over time. Mm -hmm. Our consultant listeners are probably chuckling and saying <laughs> organizations don't learn. Otherwise, I'd be unemployed. <laughs> but um, what's the next one, yeah. Ben? Well, so first of all, I just want to harken back to something you just mentioned and the way you talked, right? This kind of, we're talking about language today. And you, you mentioned that organizations doing things, and we, we say this all the time, and organizations thinking in certain ways, and we anthropomorphize the organization. That's another way in which we think about it. We think of organizations as as humans in a way, right? Or as as this thing that does stuff, but really it's the people inside that are doing all anyway that's a whole nother topic the other well that's <laughs> why the aliens are humans or now oh okay we're not going to always have the huge green little green man type alien oh now we're going to get attacked by a gas a bacteria but the whole thing is is everything is something that's already within our conception mm -hmm. right? They, right we tried to kill galileo when he said the earth wasn't the center of the universe, the sun was because it was just. I don't know why they tried to kill him outside of it was really different thinking at the time and mm -hmm. different thinking that breaks metaphors, breaks paradigms are hard to digest for humans. Sure. And that's why most of the self-help, the TED, you know, TEDx talks and all this stuff. If I hear one more thing about mindfulness, I'm going to puke. Does my, what is this? But it'd be hard to talk about thinking about yourself without mindfulness. And I don't even think that was like, I think somebody just came up with that. Personality tests and its salience. How we look at somebody's image is pernicious. You know, if somebody has um, cultural garb, um, a hijab in the workplace, uh, dreads um, for, you know, somebody that has big dreadlocks. And in the past and how I was raised, that's completely unprofessional. But does that really affect their work product? Like what? No, but not at all. The, the concept for somebody, at least by some of the people that help raise me, is, well, if you're a good person, then you... Uh, make yourself look like the others mm. and that changes now. And that's hard for some people because the metaphor and the kind of uh, what we'll call a social heuristic breaks apart. Mm. So let's talk about two more. There's the cultural system and a political system. So we can think of an organization in that cultural system as a mini society with its own cultures and subcultures. That's defined by our norms, values, beliefs, and rituals, a political system, 
You know, an organization is a game of gaining, influencing, and coordinating power, right? You can just see the differences between those two different metaphors change the emphasis of what you're thinking about. And they privilege perhaps some concept at the detriment of another. So thinking about the organization as a political system privileges this idea of power, right? We're thinking about how power is distributed, how power is used. Whereas you, if you're thinking about it as a cultural system, you're thinking about this idea of norms, values, and beliefs. Another one, the sixth one, is a psychic prison. This is fascinating. Uh, you know, an organization is a collection of myths and stories that restrict people's thoughts, ideas, and actions. That one's actually fairly similar to a cultural system, right? Because our our culture, the way we talk about things, the rituals we use, the ceremonies, the stories, the heroes, the villains, those are all parts of how we how we decide what types of behavior are acceptable, which ones are not acceptable. And, you know, I remember in another graduate level class, it was, um, <laughs> you know, shocking to one of my, one of my graduate student classmates um, who had less work experience than, than some of the others of us, who, you know, this idea of, oh yeah, uh, you know, the culture of an organization is also a social constraint. It's used to constrain behavior and it's used to mold people and as you mentioned drive conformity uh, in in a lot of ways and is that altogether bad i i I don't think so can it it be no (laughs) can it can it can it be taken to an extreme sure right that's what makes this so difficult okay so what's the seven i love i i i just want to say one more thing on that the psychic prison an organization is a collection of myths and stories that restrict people's thoughts, ideas, and actions. Now, you hate that because you hate the man, right? The man's hmm. always telling you what to do. Society be getting you down. But imagine a society without any constraints. <laughs> yeah, that, that doesn't work that, so well. Like, like, like there, there has to be, like, all right, Ben, you and I are going to start an organization, and, you know, I always talk about pants. My, the first rule of my organization is you got to wear pants because I don't want to go to a place. Yes, I'm restricting here. If you're going to do a deal with me, you got to have pants. I don't want to live in a world where or skirts, dresses, something. I don't want to see your naked legs up above the knees too far. Right. And that that's. That is a restricting of people's right. thoughts, ideas, and actions. But you, it, this isn't like music where no form is a form. Organiz, organizations, I think, actually have to have, a, and it could be a changing form, but there has to be something or people just aren't going to want to participate. Well, otherwise, it's not an organization anymore. Going back to my early definition from Carl Weick, consensually validated grammar of sensible interlocking behaviors. That That is the idea of that we, as a group, be it through emergent phenomena or through uh, explicit determination of values and behaviors, we come up with what's appropriate and what's not. Uh, number seven. And, oh, by, by the way, I also want to mention going back to your organization idea of uh, wearing pants. I have to compliment you on your mustard um, colored uh, long sleeve 
shirt um, in contrast to your ratty undershirts that sometimes don your person while we are. Uh, ben, that's supposed to be behind the. You said the quiet part out loud. <laughs> <laughs> Get out of my organization. <laughs> yes, on, on, on an internationally um, distributed podcast, nonetheless. No, you're good. So, <laughs> instrument of domination. An organization is a means to impose one's will on others and exploit resources for personal gains. And this is, and I'm just going to throw the last one in here because I want to couple these together. Flux, an organization, a metaphor for organization is flux and transformation. An organization is an ever-changing system indivisible from its environment. And I, one of the things that's really cool. I was talking to a friend of mine, Heath Durrell, who's an academic. He was at Princeton. I think he's somewhere in Texas now. Um, he actually, one of his expertise is about child sa- sacrifice in ancient Israel. Oof. And what, right? Well, they, back in the day, we have elements, right? And then, you know, they eventually adopted animal sacrifice, which a lot of people, I'm using this example for a very specific reason. People are like, oof, animal sacrifice was actually a step up morally mm-hmm. from the human sacrifice, right? And the idea that I think it's fair to say that our morality as humans have evolved and I would say gotten better. Our lenses have changed as well. On that, like, do you really go back so many years ago and bash on somebody for killing their child? I mean, you do from a modern lens, but right, if you had some empathy for that point in history. And so there's this element of activism, right? People want to change. They want to move the moral landscape forward. And things that are hindrances. Um, to a velocity of change that they would like to see in the world, which is great. I'm glad. Ben, you and I are trying to be, to use the campy phrase, world changers, right? You read it in our manifesto. We are trying to make the world better. But anything that slows that down can be, oh, it's the psychological prison of the organization. The organizations are an instrument of domination, there are some things you can't have a world where everything is unglued. Some sure, and, and set, some act, some activists are going in the wrong direction, right? I, not all may, activism maybe. Is, is right. That, yeah, that's maybe. I mean, right? We run experiments. We don't know. Some things probably take longer to change than they should. Sure. But you know, some people will use a term supremacy. But another term for supremacy in my world is the prevailing worldview. And sometimes the prevailing worldview really stinks. It really does. And, but that's kind of, you know, that consensually, when we talk about organizing, that consensually agreed upon grammar, I think that's the hardest part. Mm. Because really, no matter what kind of policy you put in place, whatever kind of law, whatever kind of punishment, whatever kind of social shaming or social punishment that we try to use. At the end of the day, you only win people over to that future that you're looking at, that whatever metaphor for organizing that you're trying to create in the lens and minds and hearts of people, 
has to be consensually agreed. And it, I got to say, it's really frustrating. As somebody's trying to change the world as well, that can be frustrating at times. I think change is always frustrating. I think the the point that I, I would love to emphasize and maybe leave our listeners with, re- with regard to these eight different organizational metaphors that we shared, is that, okay, out of these eight, which one's right? All of them. Which one's wrong? All of them. All of them. <laughs> but it's all, hard to talk. It, it's right. hard to talk they, without these. They all help us understand a way in which we view human organization. Our focus today, as we'll talk about here in a few moments, is this idea of organization as family. But let's move on now and just, you know, I think it's it's worth repeating and perhaps emphasizing that the reason this is important and the reason this is so relevant <laughs> for people who are trying to run organizations, trying to exist meaningfully in them, is that how we talk about things can create, it can reinforce different cultural norms. As we mentioned earlier, the stories that we tell our, tell about ourselves, about each other, and about our organizations really do shape our attitudes. Uh, I think the military is a great example of how we, there's been a deliberate attempt over a couple centuries now in our branches of the military to shape cultural norms through the telling of stories using heroes and villains. Like that, and it's very, it's it's kind of a context that makes it fairly easy because of the, you know, we do dramatic things once in a while. And so you have emergence of clear heroes and villains. And that can, that is a powerful storytelling technique that that's important. It's not something that's wrong. It's, it's a way to communicate what we care about. And if used in the right way, it can guide organizations in a productive path forward. Yeah, and I, it's not exactly accurate, but I could see, and ha- we have seen in the past where somebody, after the dust had settled, after maybe you have a conflict somewhere globally as a military, then everybody comes in and says, it's a lie. These people weren't really villains. They never were in the first place, right? But we have to talk about things in the way that we go. Like, I'll take Russia, for instance. Putin's a real jackwagon. But the Russian people aren't all jackwagons, and a lot of them are pretty good. But telling that story becomes challenging. And I don't think we should shy away from it, but the heroes and villains stories, really important. Mm -hmm. How many times, it's funny, Ben and I go into so many of these organizations, and it takes a while sometimes, because what we're telling them is so far out of their cultural norms and thoughts about how to get along together. It's like, they don't even get it. Mm -hmm. Hey guys, organizations can only do so much. Even if you, everybody could work 24 seven, there's a limit to what they can do in that time. Sure. And they just look at you like what, Hey, we should prioritize what we do. But really what they talk about is what they want to do. And they have like politics and interactions. And and the way you talk about things can reinforce things so much that you can't see outside. So if you get into trouble, if you're an organization that's like, ooh, we're facing challenges, 
sometimes you got to break apart those cultural norms and the stories that you're telling each other to be able to tell a new story to get to a different place. Right. And going hand in hand with this idea of stories is just the power of language. And that's why metaphor metaphors really matter. I always find it interesting to think about and sometimes come across words from other languages that we don't have in English that mean something that we don't even have a word for in English. And one of my favorite ones, I'm not going to try to pronounce it because I'm sure I'll butcher it. It's a Japanese word, though. And it, it translates um, to uh, lonely mouth um, when you're not hungry, but you eat because your mouth is lonely. And, uh, first of all, I just yeah. think that's hilarious. But there is this idea, you know, you eat stuff, not because you're hungry, but just because you want to eat stuff. And we don't have a word for that in English. Um, but, you know, the we, we can only, you know, the, the interaction between language and thought is one of these um, underappreciated aspects of human life that I just think is fascinating. And it influences how we think about organizations. Oh man, what's that one Higgy or something mm. from the where it's it's a really nice feeling you get from home or something? Yeah, it's like a Scandinavian word. It's like cozy. Yeah, that's that's yeah, that's a fun I one. I love it. Okay, right. so what? Yeah, let's talk about this idea of family as a way to think about your work organization. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, I think this is a fairly common one, and it's oftentimes used as a source of pride. Uh, when people say we're a family here, uh, and, and that gives, you know, it's not for most of us, if we hear that, we're like, Oh, that, that sounds good. Like depending on maybe, maybe depending on your experience as a family, um, you may or may not think that's a, a good experience, but, uh, it, it's one of these metaphors that, that can be problematic. So, uh, let's talk about that. Well, so families is. Let's just talk about how that sticks together and falls apart. You divorce is very common. Sadly, I in my view, more common than it, it should be. Um and so, okay, is our company a broken family or mm. is our com- right? Um that that's a hard one. Is the nuclear family the way to think about? What about people that come from a society? I have some friends where they're from cultures where it's very common for all the sons to stay living with their family to marry and their wives to come into a family compound. And mm-hmm. well, is, is that it? So, and there's kind of, you know, the oldest brother's wife has more say than the youngest brother's wife. Is that what we want mm. in our, in our company's family? And then as people, or at least for myself, um, you know, I come from a broken family. I've spent a lot of time going into the literature around marriage and family and learning about evidence-based ways to keep things together, how to do the family organization better, at least in the nuclear context. And I got to say, most people don't know that stuff. And there is some indication that some people come from backgrounds and they've learned stuff from their family of origin that helps them be successful. So if somebody said to you, hey, Chris, I'd love for you to work at our organization. The salary is going to be kajillion dollars a year. And we are just a great 
family. What would what would be going through your mind? I would throw up on my legs. <laughs> I'm like, no, you need to hire me as a consultant, and I will not work for you. Why? And right because of that idea of that's a messy metaphor to get behind. And most people don't know how to do, all right, we're going to be a family, buddy. That means everybody needs to get pro on the literature of how to do family well. Because I'm not going to be in a dysfunctional family that's all laid up with some, like, drunken father that beats people in the evening. You know, like, there's, I, out of all the metaphors, the top eight, family was not one of them Mm -mm. in Morgan's group. And that's because it's so problematic. But this is where culture becomes accidental and not intentional. And when you have a broad, messy metaphor like family, really what emerges behind that is using interpersonal relationships as a manipulation for all kinds of nefarious things. So there's some good resources that we'll post links to in the show notes, and maybe we could just summarize some of those for our listeners. And the first one is an, an article that was posted on TED, and uh, this is by David Burkus, and it's titled, Why a Company is Not a Family and How Companies Can Bond with Their Employees Instead. And this article does a good job of talking about the problematic nature of thinking about your organization as a family and why you should not try, not not aspire as an organization to be a family. Uh, so let's go through some of those. And the first objection or first problematic piece of thinking about your organization as family that he mentions is that work-life boundaries get blurred, right? If, if you're thinking about your organization as a family, then where does work and non-work life begin? And this is a dark side that I also see with some of the tech companies that tout their, you know, amazing perks. And, you know, you can, you basically don't have to leave because they, they have laundry on site. You can take a shower in the gym. You can get a checkup at the doctor. You can get a haircut. You can, there are various types of leisure activities. You could go play racquetball, whatever. You really wouldn't have to leave. There's a dark side to that because that shouldn't be your entire life, in my view. Yeah, this is Peter Pan syndrome gone awry. You get some <laughs> mat, you believe you can fly, you go to Never Never Land. And if you're a 13-year-old kid at Boy Scout camp or Girl Scout camp, great. Have your laundry on site. And a foosball table. Do not have the keg of beer if you're 13, okay? Wait, they have but, on, on-site laundry at Boy Scout camp? I don't think so. <laughs> they they didn't mind because, oh, man. Anyway, what? work-life boundaries get blurred. Now, it's appropriate if you have to call your spouse and say, hey, listen, I got I can't come home for the next four nights on time for dinner or something because – Uncle Larry's broke his leg and his porch is caved in. I'm going to go rebuild Uncle Larry's porch. Right? You're there's obligations in some families based on the value they put on blood relationships or something like that, right? But if you go, hey, I can't come in because I've got to spend the next 5 months putting out version 2.4 of this software. Lame. Mm -hmm. lame and that company doesn't owe you jack 
at the end of that. They'll say, they'll paint the pig. Oh yeah, we have a commitment to our employees. But when it comes to the survival of that organization, you know, a family might say, hey, we're going to close the hatches and come what may. We're with each other, even if they take if the bank takes the house or the farm or whatever. But an organization, and when they're looking at the bank and the bank's like, we're going to come take the org's farm. They're like, some of you employees got to go. Mm-hmm. Right. There's not work life boundaries get blurred. And guys, I think having some work life balance is actually and boundaries is actually a positive. I agree. The second one that David Burgess mentions in this article is that committed employees can get taken advantage of. And I think this is this is certainly plausible as well, because when you have a an organization that really overemphasizes this family metaphor, then it's like, OK, well, what do we do in families? We're going to ask family level commitment from you. And when we just start stacking on the work, then it's going to become very difficult culturally in that organization because that metaphor influences how we think, our attitudes and our behaviors. It's going to become very difficult for that employee to say no. And they're going to be stuck in this routine of getting taken advantage of just because they are relatively committed and maybe high performing. Yeah. And my cynical view, right? Because you got to realize I go into struggling orgs People like the organization as family metaphor exactly because they want to take advantage of committed employees. They're mm. going to gonna drive them into the ground and they're going to emotionally manipulate them to suck every bit of value. And then they're going to de- develop like a family cult so they feel guilty if they ever want to leave, no matter how much they're used and abused. Sure. Another one that he mentions is that when you think and overemphasize this idea of your organization as family, that pe- when people leave, those departing em- employees, well, what happens if you leave a family? Like, you're you're betraying the family. And that's perhaps how people who leave the organization, in that instance, may get labeled. And and that's, gosh, that's, that's unhealthy on a whole number of levels. Yeah, it's it, that's where it starts dipping into cult level organiz- organizing rather than sure human uh, healthy organization. So let's see, he mentions some things that you might do instead that are actually really good. Do we want to go into those or do we want to just leave that for the end? Maybe we'll come back to those in a, in a minute. You know, another uh, good article that that we'll post a link to in the show notes is from a, a guy named Joshua Luna. Um, and this was posted on on HBR's website, and this is a, an article titled "The Toxic Effects of Branding Your Workplace a Family," and it brings up a number of this similar or related types of of points um, about personal and professional lines blurring. Uh, this exaggerated sense of loyalty can become harmful. Um, it's a power dynamic in which employees can get taken advantage of. Um, and, and I think it just overall highlights how maybe we should rethink this idea of family. You know, another problematic piece of this metaphor that, um, that I've noticed in some companies that I've worked with that have said that we're a family here is that they, it makes it very difficult for executives to then make hard decisions. I mean, you mentioned layoffs. Well, what if you really do need to lay people off? in order to keep the organization viable. If you <laughs> yeah, think I'm, thinking, your... I'm thinking of one and like 
they need to replace some senior executives, but they've mm. been there for so long. And the and we're a family. We don't, you know, in terms of layoffs, we don't do that. Right. Becomes the mantra because we're a family and, you know, families don't just kick people out. That's good. You, you families, get... <laughs> families shouldn't kick their members out. I am an advocate of staying together as a family, but as an organization, you do have tough decisions that you have to make sometimes. And it's not about you as a person. It's not about the individuals. You have a, a, a mission and a, an obligation to your, you know, stakeholders and shareholders and, and society, depending on the nature of your organization to do something. And if you can't do that, because the payroll is just overly burdensome and you need to reorganize, you need to perhaps lay some folks off. Having that family metaphor makes it really hard. Yeah. And so I, you know, I know this one CEO, he had, he called it his charity case and he just loved this lady, but this lady was functionally blind and she would do anything he asked. He would, but the type of work he had was actually dangerous level manufacturing so he couldn't have her out on the manufacturing floor, but he would, he would, sometimes he'd just say, Hey, why don't you just take the day off? Don't worry. I'm paying you anyway. Cause he just really liked this lady and knew that she had a family to provide for. And so he always made sure she was okay. And, you know, it took a couple of years, but they actually found a meaningful role and for things for her to do that were within her capability and if you ever talked about firing that lady, he'd probably punch you in the face because he's mm-hmm. like, no, you could be so wealthy. You can have a couple charity cases. And I, I I know that language is fraught. But also, if you're keeping somebody on just because you're family and never let anybody goes, that impacts the social norms of the rest of the organization. The CEO has favorites and you can't touch them. Mm. Um, you know, uh, we... T- if, there's an in-group, out-group dynamic that can be created with keeping people on. You're not focused on the purpose and mission of the organization. Instead, you're kind of focused on more of this collective type thing. So there, there's no right or wrong answers here. I definitely, definitely being, having charity and keeping people employed definitely pulls on the heartstrings mm-hmm. in a Hallmark movie kind of way. But sometimes we have to take we just ha- need to be holistic about how we view those things. Right. If keeping people on is going to result in the demise of the entire organization or or parts of it, it's not good in the long run. And that's the hard decision that that executives have to be able to make. And this family metaphor is not helpful if that's what they need to do. Yeah. The Titanic, right? You're sinking. What did they say? Rearrange Women and the children chairs. first. <laughs> Women and children first, right? And and people realize like, hey, if some of us are going to live, some of us are going to have to not, right? So, yeah, there's that. So let's turn our attention now to some maybe some implications of this idea of family as metaphor and maybe better ways to think about it. Uh, some implications for people, leaders, and organizations. And the one of the first ones that I thought of was if I'm thinking about as this is an individual level implication. If I'm thinking about my organization as family, you know, for whatever reason, I was brought up that way, maybe the organization said, yes, we're a family here, then I'm treating my career and my membership in any work organization um, as as family, 
And this can become problematic because, you know what, at, at some level, I'm going to be caring maybe about the organization way more than it cares about me. And I think most organizations are probably in that <laughs> that situation where, um, you know, we may care about the organization a little bit more than, than they care about us. All organizations, if they're functioning well, can survive with without you as an employee. Like if 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 you are the the essential employee, that's probably not good for the overall sustainability and reliability of the organization. Uh, but I think it can be harmful for our careers if we think of every organization as a family and we we think that the organization is always going to take care of us because that's what families do. Not all organizations are going to take care of you. In fact, many of them probably won't. In fact, a lot of families won't take care of you. You have mm, to pick up the leadership sad. and carry forward. And there's this idea of moral injury. Now, moral injury tends to, at least from the literature that I've read, be when you have to do something that violates your principles. Right. But there's that same kind of emotional sentiment of, oh, this, this organization said we're a family. Well, I'm going to come in and start acting like a good family member. And I'm doing everything. I'm doing nights and weekends because, right, you don't want to let your family down. Ah, they fired me. And then you have a real wounding there and an org- a, a injury there because they didn't hold up their side of the bargain. But I got to say that that, was a, that wasn't a real bargain anyway. Just like you can't sign a contract with a minor. You can but the miner can disregard the legal contract. If you want, if you want to sell, um, like a 16-year-old can't take out a loan on a car. The parent has to sign. Because they you can't have that with the thing. The family contract is not a contract you can sign with the organization, no matter how much they say it's a contract they're offering. It's just not real because they aren't your family. They aren't your family. So we're going to move now to talk about some implications for leaders and organizations. But first, I do want to explicitly mention to our listeners that, hey, we actually started another short podcast called Good Leaders Do This. We haven't mentioned it on the Indigo podcast, but you can check that out at goodleadersdothis.com. You can also check it out on any of your podcasting platforms, Good Leaders Do This. These are short episodes, generally about Eight to 12 minutes is kind of our normal range. And they, each one of them has an idea that, uh, an action that leaders, that good leaders do. And we talk about what it means, why it matters, and what you can do today about it. We also have a vibrant, burgeoning substack called Elevating What Works. Check that out at elevatingwhatworks.com. Please subscribe to that. Put your email address in. We would love to have you be part of that community. If you haven't subscribed to this podcast, please do it. We do this all for free (laughs) right now in terms of our podcasting. So please help us, support us, subscribe. That really helps us in the long run. Yeah, if you're part of the Indigo family and you're a good family (laughs) member, you're going to subscribe and share. Good, (laughs) yes, good family members do this. Good family members subscribe to all of our stuff. So get out there, Indigo family. That's awesome. Okay, so let's talk about some implications for leaders with regard to this idea of organization as family. And we already mentioned one of them, right? You might need to fire a member of your family, and that's not good. Yeah, and, you know, 
So we kind of mowed that lawn. I think as a leader, if you see this behavioral norm, especially from your more junior employees coming in, help them frame how to think about being an employee. You know, when you're bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, and you're taking your first corporate job out of college, you're going to have all kinds of weird ideas about organizations. One we commonly see is this family one. Help that youngster, right? That whippersnapper, as it were, um, to to kind of come to terms with the handshake, a healthy handshake, what a healthy relationship looks like between an individual and the organization they'll work in. Sure. And some other proactive things that you can do as an organization or as a leader is focus on redefining your purpose, right? Get a, move away from this idea of the family metaphor and instead look for what are your big goals, the, the big things that you're trying to do as an organization and coalesce around that. Coalesce around your purpose, your mission, uh, instead of this idea of yourselves as family. Yeah, CEOs, this is where you have to get some clarity of vision and purpose for your org. Don't rely on relational manipulations. If your culture is one giant bag of handshakes and emotional manipulations, it's going to be hard for you to get the kind of traction you need when you want to change directions or the competitive environment changes all the time. I don't know. I tell people these things and nothing happens. Uh, you know, a good friend of ours uses this, hey, you want traction, not wheel spin, right? Well, if you want traction, an organization that's built around, around priorities and purpose rather than manipulative family relationships is going to be the thing you want versus the other. Another thing that leaders and organizations should be thinking about is this idea of encouraging boundaries, uh, making sure that you're not forcing people to be overcommitted. And that's just a good best practice if you want to keep people for the long term. If you want to uh, emphasize that you understand that people have lives outside of work. And then another item is to actually celebrate when people leave. Um, I'm pulling from the article by David Burkus again, and I will post that link to the show notes for folks. But, uh, you know, when people leave the organization, it doesn't have to be this idea of betrayal. Uh, in fact, celebrate that. And it's interesting, some organizations, some of the big consulting firms do this, where when someone leaves, they're like, all right, no harm, no foul, and we consider you alumni. And they keep them around <laughs> in case they need to bring someone back for a purpose or want to collaborate with them in the future. Another thing to keep in mind is that when people do leave your organization, they're going somewhere else. They're talking to their families, their friends, their neighbors about your organization. And if that is a, a an unhealthy departure, it's one that's going to influence your brand as an organization. I think that's good, Ben. Anything awesome. else we want to say? Uh, I don't think so. I just want people to go over to elevatingwhatworks.com and check out our Substack, and I want them to check out Good Leaders Do This as a podcast as well. So today on the Indigo podcast, we've talked about the, the idea that your workplace shouldn't be your family. And we talked about this idea of metaphors for the organization. We talked about how the way in which you talk about things create or reinforce your cultural norms and some implications for people, leaders, and organizations. Thanks for listening to the Indigo podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider helping us by rating us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, telling your friends about us, 
having us on your podcast, or mentioning us on social media. Our website is www.indigopodcast.com, where you can access more information about us and this episode. Thanks again, and we look forward to talking with you again soon.